Hey, Gerard, how you doing this week? I'm doing very well in beautiful Charlottesville that right now is pretty great. Yeah, well... Let me say to our listeners and listeners, of course, this is Kara Kandel and the Learning Curve here with the great Gerard Robinson. I don't. Do you hear that, Gerard? Do you hear that noise in the background? What cheering when you said great? Birds <laughs> 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 tweeting outside my window because it's all nice and sunny here in Boston. And please don't tell anybody, but I took like an hour and a half off in the middle of the day and just like went for a walk. Um, now I know, right? Shh. Like nobody's listening. Okay. Uh, no, this is um, this is a great day. Not only is it sunny outside, but Gerard, how exciting! It's like Money Day. It's the episode where we get to talk to a real live economist. Hmm. Is one there anything been talking about more money exciting? a really, really, really long time? I, I mean, listen, I love talking about money as long as it's about schools. And I'm fascinated by money as long as it's about schools. When it comes to my own pocketbook, not so much. My husband will tell you that, too. I'd like to, I'd like to see it leave. Uh, I don't like to think about how much more we need to have coming in or, or, or the things on which I've spent it. But um, a lot of schools probably operate that way, too, unfortunately. Um but, you know, this is a really great segue, Gerard, into my story of the week, which is a really good one, I thought, from Ed Week. And it's all about school budgets. And actually, the title mm-hmm. is School Budgets, Why They're Not As Bad As Predicted. Do you know why they're not as bad as predicted? Maybe because of all the money funneling in from the federal government. That would be prong one. I mean, that's a heck of a lot of money as we've been talking about. But the other thing is, is this article is saying that in, you know, in most states, most states just actually didn't take the hit that we had predicted they would have to a year ago. Now, some did. There were definitely exceptions. So states that rely on tourism, states that... um that are like, like Texas took a really big hit because of, um, it, you know, relies on oil. Um, so, so there are definitely some states that were exceptions to the rules, but overall, most states were able to some dipped into the rainy day funds and stuff, but things mm-hmm. have been quite as dire, which is, you know, it's good news for schools. Doesn't mean schools don't need more, but, um, you know, it's when we talk about schools specifically, the other thing that this article points out is that much like the pandemic was, you know, worse for kids in school districts that weren't equipped, didn't have, you know, digital devices and all of that stuff, the, the budget situation is going to be worse for those schools. Because even though we have all of this federal money coming in, those places are very heavily reliant on federal money, period. So they don't mm-hmm. have sort of the other cushion that is, there was a great NPR story a couple of weeks ago about Wellesley, Massachusetts, very wealthy community, um, and talking about how, you know, they were able to sort of, they can draw on local property taxes. So they might not see as much federal money, but they're going to have consistently more money to draw down. Whereas this federal money that a lot of the lower income districts that are very reliant on Title I money are going to see, they're not going to have that cushion going forward. They're going to have, you know, to draw down on these COVID funds, there's some restrictions on how they can spend them. So it's not quite the same. So even though state budgets aren't as bad as predicted and school budgets might not be as bad as predicted, we need to keep thinking about looking forward because, you know, some districts are going to feel it more than others and they're going to feel it in the coming years. So I, you know, this was a really interesting one. Again, we keep being proven um, incorrect in all of the assumptions that we made a year ago. Um, I, we're not the only ones, I'm sure. The the one thing I wanted to say, and I have to give a shout out um, to, you know, my folks at Excel and Ed, because we've been thinking very um, 
very carefully my colleagues and I about how states should spend this money and how districts, I should say, should spend this money. And this article says the same thing. It's like, you know, you want to be really careful with this windfall of federal dollars, not to make long-term investments. You want to make non-recurring investments. And so especially in these places that are so reliant on federal funds, it might seem like a windfall at first, but it's going to go away quickly. So think about those things that, well, not quickly, it's going to go away, you know, the end of the decade, but think about those things that you can make that are large one-time upfront investments in states should be incenting districts to do that. So I highly recommend this read. Like I said, it is from Ed Week. And um, and yeah, it was a good one. And hopefully we can talk to our guest about that too. What do you think? What's on your mind? So my article is similar. It talks about money, but maybe how we didn't invest not only money well, but how we could have reimagined the use of virtual learning. So my article is from Michael Horn. It's in Education Next. The title is School Squandered Virtual Learning, uh, a timid response with lessons for the future. Mike Horn, for over a decade, uh, has talked about the importance of personalized learning and the use of technology. And the point that he really makes is this. He said, listen, advocates like me and others for a long time have championed technology to play a central role in schooling. But he reminds us that technology alone was not the goal in and of itself. He said, rather, technology was a means to do one big thing, remake a public education system that was built during the industrial age, not for our current knowledge-based economy. And so as you and I know, and we've talked about uh, on the show and talked with others, you know, we've got billions of dollars going to K-12 schools, more to public, less to private, but who are saying, we want you to do something differently. And he said, yeah, people said that, but pretty much they did not. He did acknowledge that even those districts rushed uh, to move toward uh, online learning, and some of that was driven more by demands from governors than really some pedagogical uh, push. You know, he reminds us that they largely haven't embraced the principles of personalization, active learning, mastery-based learning, engagement and motivation. And these are principles that he not only has talked about for a long time, but those who are in the field of education and research have identified as important to the learning and teaching process. Good news is he said that some 79% of the teachers uh, who were interviewed have reported discovering new resources and practices, and they plan to uh, keep those, um, you know, after uh, the pandemic. And this is according to a Christensen uh, Institute survey. He also identified that nearly 40% report that using technology to facilitate some innovative practices has actually helped with some of the principles he mentioned. So yes, it's been a timid response. Yes, some schools did better than others, but as he said, we need to take lessons for the future. I am 50-50 on this because I think there's so much money at play that people will think about how to reimagine schools from a hammock rather than doing it from a school site. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well put. That's really that's really interesting. And and that phrase, you know, it's like technology is about facilitating learning. It's one, it's a tool for personalization. All of these things that schools should have been thinking about. And if you saw any of these videos of like schools just recreating the regular old school day over Zoom, you, you know what I mean? It's there 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 were definitely some among us that that saw that and saw their kids experience it that thought, oh dear God, this is not what we had all envisioned, right? It was a hard pivot to it's it's sort of like 
you, you get a little bit of what you want and a lot of what you don't, because we all of a sudden we have technology and this grand opportunity, but everybody was under such pressure yep. um, to just get something going that we weren't able to use technology in the way that Michael and others uh, that we've had on the show, like Julia Fisher, have talked about for so long. So hopefully, yeah, I'm with you. I, I hope that folks will really lose, use some of this money to reimagine learning. And you know what? Listen, if enough of us are are forcing schooling to be reimagined because we're at the hammock in our backyard or the hammock <laughs> where, mm-hmm. wherever is we like to go swing at a mm-hmm. hammock or just maybe even the hammock in your in your kitchen that you mm-hmm. hang up because you're not sending the kid to school but you you have expectations of your of your local school district um, maybe that will will force a change but this is this is always for Michael Horn really thoughtful stuff and and there's one point that I'd also like to say that uh, he touched on in the article, but it's something I've said before. The one thing that really burns me up are the number of times I hear people say children can't learn looking at a screen. Now, some of the people who say that just don't like online learning because they see it as privatization or they see it as not real education. And yet these are some of the same people who support PBS, who support watching and supporting what uh, Sesame Street and other educational programs that have been on for decades in front of television screens and in front of computer screens and handheld devices. And yet all of a sudden, somehow online or not in class learning. I'm not saying removing everyone from school and putting them behind a screen is the same. But let's just be very clear about some of the politics about saying online or in on screen education or learning doesn't work. Now, let me tell you, my friend. If if nobody can learn from a screen, then my my darling third child, who spends way more time in front of a television than the other two ever did, <laughs> is in real trouble. So let's hope that's not true. Yep. Uh, coming up after this, Gerard, really excited. We are going to be speaking to Eric Hanyashek. Um, if you Woo-hoo. if you read anything about schools and money, you probably know Professor Hanyashek. So excited for that. We've even got a whoop from Gerard. Fantastic. Um, We'll be back with you right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we are here with Eric Hanyashek, the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. He is a recognized leader in the economic analysis of education issues, and his research has had broad influence on education policy in both developed and developing countries. He is the author of numerous widely cited studies on the effects of class size reduction, school accountability, teacher effectiveness, and other topics, including, I'll add, one that we have talked about several times on the learning curve in the past year about COVID. Um, He was the first to research teacher effectiveness by measuring students' learning gains. And this approach formed the conceptual basis for using value-added measures to evaluate teachers in schools, now a widely adopted practice in many countries. His recent book, The Knowledge Capital of Nations, Education, and the Economics of Growth summarizes his research establishing the close links between countries' long-term rates of economic growth and the skill levels of their populations. 
Ongoing research focuses on international variations in student performance and considers what differences in schooling systems lead to country differences in the skills of people. He has authored or edited 24 books along with over 250 articles. He is a distinguished graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and completed his PhD in economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology right down the street from where I am standing. <laughs> Dr. Hanyashik, welcome to the show. And I have to say, I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to you because my um, the the experience of doing my own doctoral work wouldn't have been the same without reading you. So we're very happy to have you. <laughs> well, I hope it was an okay experience. Thanks for it having was- me on. It was a fantastic experience, I assure you. Some things I had to read more than once, but, you know, but it's it's made me the person I am today. Um, so we just, there's so much that we could talk to you about. It was hard to to choose which questions, but let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the current moment. As I've mentioned, you had an article out um, a few months, back, well, probably more than a few months back at this time, but who knows how many months have passed, um, talking about um, COVID-19, potential learning loss impacts on the economy. But I also want to ask you more broadly. So we we can talk about NAEP scores and we know that for for over a decade for far too long they've been stagnant in math and reading and that achievement gaps remain as wide as ever something that you've written about the economic impacts of that. But now here we are faced with learning loss due to the pandemic and some projections say that it's not only will it be significant but of course some students are going to be harder hit than others. So could you talk a little bit about you know the reality of American K to 12 education before COVID-19 in terms of what students were learning in comparison to what they should be learning and then how how this moment and how the learning loss that we that some students will face um, plays into this larger problem of of gaps in achievement in American education. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, before COVID hit, uh, so if we talk about 2019, we found that the U.S. wasn't doing all that well. The U.S. Uh, is like 31st in mathematics in the world, uh, following 30 other nations. Um, that's 15-year-olds on the PISA test. And that has a huge impact on our future ability to grow and to prosper the COVID experience just upended everything. Uh, COVID experience means that the current cohort that was affected by the closures of last spring is going to be harmed permanently unless we can do something about the schools. And on average, uh, we, we aren't sure of the amount of learning loss that's occurred because everybody is refraining from testing They say it's an odd year, we can't test anybody, and in part, they can't find everybody. So we don't know for sure, but the learning losses are really significant. They were significant last summer, and everybody thought, well, maybe we'd get back to schools as normal in this coming year, the one we're in now. And in fact, um, we're at a race to see whether we can open the schools for in-class instruction on the day before school ends. And so it's it's, um, just a a huge problem. And as you point out, it's got to expand the uh, gaps in 
learning by socioeconomic background and race. What we're going to see is that the previous gaps, which were, I think, uh, unfortunate by all standards, are going to grow. And that's going to mean that uh, black and brown and poor kids in the future will, in fact, be uh, earning a lot less and the gaps with other more fortunate kids is going to grow. And what can you help frame for our listeners? What what is this lost earnings for for some kids? As you point out, it's going to be disproportionate. What does that mean overall for the economy? So, I mean, you you were quoted in the Wall Street Journal recently saying that innovation and skills are shaped by education and that the skill shock of 2020 will produce 25 trillion to 30 trillion of lost economic output. So that's one way of looking. Can you talk to us a little bit more about these larger financial estimates? Because this sure. the the tragedy for individuals is is real and horrible and it's one thing, but there's also a wider a bigger story here. Sure. Well, let me start with individuals first, because when we get to the whole tragic story, nobody can understand exactly the magnitude of the losses that we're going to suffer. But at an individual level, we know a lot about how earnings play out over one's career. And in fact, earnings are closely related to the skills that people have. So these tests that we measure often in math and reading uh, turn out to be quite predictive of future earnings of individuals. If we take historic estimates of the impact of skills on earnings in the U.S., the first thing we find is that the U.S. rewards skills more than almost all developed countries of the world. Um, That the U.S., eats up skills of, of workers and rewards them for it. Now, if you just play that backwards, it says the U.S. punishes the lack of skills more than any other nation. And that's what we're facing coming out of COVID is that large numbers of people have fewer skills and over their lifetime are going to feel the pressures of that. Now, my estimates in August with my colleague Ludger Woosman in Munich um, were that if schools return to their 2019 levels last September, that you the average student who faced the closures was going to lose 3% of their lifetime earnings. Now, that's almost certainly much, much larger given that so few schools have actually returned to their prior levels. And so my current estimates are somewhere between six and 9% losses of lifetime earnings for individuals who have faced this uh, problem of school closures and remote schooling and hybrid schooling and so forth during the last year. Now, as we said, you can multiply that number by some other larger factor if you want to talk about poor kids or um, our disadvantaged kids whose parents aren't ready to help them, who might not have the technology, whose schools might be subject to more 
uh, pressures not to open and so forth. And so six to nine percent is what I call the average, but it's probably larger than that for uh, disadvantaged kids. Now, the other thing we know, uh, in addition to individuals getting higher earnings for more skills, we know that nations that have more skilled labor forces grow faster. So that nations that have a well-skilled labor force just find ways to invent new things, to increase productivity over time, and to have higher economic growth. Economic growth is what determines future well-being. The U.S. is as rich as it is today, largely because it's had high growth rates for the last century. But we're endangered because this cohort of kids in schools now is going to come out with less skills. And for some time in the future, we're going to have a less skilled labor force than we would have had there been no uh, pandemic. Now, the estimates that uh, you quoted are in the same range as the six to nine percent. We we don't know for sure if that where they are, but twenty five to thirty trillion dollars is the best estimate. And the reason why I put that off is that absolutely nobody knows what a trillion dollars is. I mean, this is a very large number. We have a $21 trillion economy. That means that each year we produce $21 trillion worth of goods and services. What we're saying is that the pandemic might have cost us the equivalent in today's dollars of more than a year's income. And these numbers um, come from lower growth, which means that the effects won't be hit won't hit for some time in the future. But what I've done is calculate them in terms of the current dollar value of these future um, losses. And they completely dwarf the estimates of economic costs that come from somewhat higher unemployment rates in the last year and a half, that come from uh, somewhat higher uh, business closures in the last year and a half. Those estimates are really very, very small compared to the full uh, cost that come from lost growth. That's a tremendous amount of money. I mean, I never thought about the fact that we're looking at possibly one year's loss of salary. So if we put that in context, which is really hard to do, at least in my mind, what are your recommendations for policymakers and others? I mean, I guess a better question is this. Will the stimulus stimulus package actually help anything? Well, let me come to the that second. Um, uh, the estimates I gave you are what happens if we just get back to 2019 school levels. That means that there's permanent harm. And there's there are examples, by the way. Some people just say, oh, kids are resilient. They'll just come on back. But there have been other examples, like uh, in the 1960s, Germany had a shortened school year. They had 
a very funny school year that started in the spring and they decided, well, they'd get with the rest of the world and make it in the fall. And they had a couple of years of shortened school years. If you look back at the earnings today of kids that were in school during those shortened years, you can pick out those cohorts because their earnings are less than you would have expected of those that were either before or after them in terms of age and got full year, full years of schooling. And so these are permanent losses unless we make the schools better. And the only hope that we have is to try to make schools better. But it's remarkable to me and frustrating how little attention has been given to this issue of learning losses. We're just on this race to see, can we open schools before the end of the school year? But that's not going to have much impact if schools tend to close in June, beginning of June or something, if we get uh, all of the K to five kids back to school in the next three weeks, which I don't even think lots of cities are going to do that, then in fact, um, uh, it's a very short period of time and it's not going to catch them up. It's not going to um, get them going at all. Um, so we have to make the schools better. And that's going to take some of the changes that were unpopular or resisted before the pandemic, but that become almost mandatory if we're going to save this generation now. You know, before the pandemic, we knew that there were huge variations in the effectiveness of teachers in their regular classrooms. Some teachers produced a lot more than just grade level learning or the gains that you'd expect for a year of, of schooling. And some produced a lot less than a year's gain each year. So we knew at that time that we would be better off if we used these really effective teachers more intensely. Well, we didn't uh, in general, a few places did, but in general we didn't because they, um, everybody resisted that. They sort of said, ah, it's too hard to judge teachers and we don't like it. It would affect the current teachers. They would be hurt and so forth. But if we're gonna make this generation somewhat whole, I don't, it's gonna be a long time before we can make up for all the losses at this point. But if we can make this generation somewhat whole, I think it's gotta be the case that we use our more effective teachers more intensely going into the future. Now there's probably two aspects of this that we, and I'm gonna start speculating a little bit here. Uh, so bear with me and you can discount it if you wish. Uh, but we're, I think, Going into next year, we're still going to have a lot of hybrid instruction. We're not going to be back to 26 kids in the same classroom with one teacher, et cetera. Uh, we're going to have some kids that are at home, some that are in school, um, and we're going to have some remote instruction going on. I think it's almost certainly the case that some teachers are more effective at remote instruction than others. Most parents, I, I suspect at this point in the school year, already know that because they've been looking over the shoulder of their kids that have been getting remote instruction. And they can see that some 
teachers are really good at it and others aren't quite so good at it. My guess, and this is a guess, is that the people that are most effective at remote instruction aren't necessarily the ones that are most effective at in-class instruction. In any event, we have to use teachers in the mode that they're best at more, of, more effectively. We have to get the best teachers doing more in-class instruction, the best remote teachers doing more remote instruction. And we have to reorganize things. Instead of aiming like the North Star toward this 26 kids in the classroom, we have to think about different configurations because uh, we're going to have to, I think. So that, You're absolutely correct. That, that's the item one. I'll give you item two, and that's all I have. Um, there's actually a few more. But, but item two is that we knew beforehand uh, in 2019 that kids were coming to, to classrooms with very different preparation and that we would be better off to individualize a lot of the instruction so that we taught to where the kid was as opposed to some rough average for a classroom. If in fact, as is almost certainly the case, the variation in preparation has increased because of the pandemic, because some kids are, are doing well on remote and other kids aren't even there. Um, this is gonna call for, again, paying a lot more attention to individualizing instruction. Something we should have done in the past, but is if we're gonna uh, overcome the losses, we're gonna have to really concentrate on that. And we now have technology that helps us a lot in doing that if we'd only start using it better. No, you're absolutely correct. As we think about learning loss and particularly for those students who are placed at risk, we know that charter schools, uh, we know that private schools funded by education tax credits, funded by vouchers and other means, they've played a role for the last 15 years in helping close the achievement gap. I guess in the midst of all the things that you've just shared with us, what role in terms of strengths or weaknesses can public and private school choice programs play in trying to address some of the issues that you see and maybe even provide lessons that traditional public schools can learn from? Well, I think on average, um, private and charter schools pivoted better in the pandemic than the traditional public schools. That's not entirely true because there are some public schools that in fact pivoted pretty well. But on average, you see that many more private schools are giving in-class instruction today. Many more charter schools are giving in-class instruction today, and they've learned how to do that. In the meantime, they also pivoted a lot in terms of providing technology to their kids to and, and their right preparation of teachers and software to get remote learning going on. Uh, charter schools, in fact, did a good job in a number of cities of providing free lunches to everybody, not just their own students, but to everybody. And so what we've seen is that these um, schools of choice, I'll, I'll aggregate everything together, um, seem to be more nimble 
during this whole experience. And we had to build on that. I think nimble is is such a great word for schools of choice. And and as you noted, not all of them did it, but we've seen a lot of them do it well. I want to, if you don't mind, I just have one more question that, that might take us back just a little bit. But I'm with all of this money that is now going to be coming down, um, especially this last package, it's going to be handed down mainly to school districts, which will include charter schools and unfortunately not uh, many of the private schools that serve uh, disadvantaged students who have been actually in person. Um, but, you know, this money has been earmarked for exactly what you've been talking about. Schools are supposed to learn it, use most of it for things like um, recovering learning loss. So if you, Dr. Hanishuk, were speaking to a district superintendent, um, what would you advise? Is there one thing or two things above all others that you would say, spend this money on X because that's what's going to make a difference for kids? Well, I mean, my answer is always the same get more effective teachers there and and spend it on more effective teachers um, as opposed to just extending the learning time of all teachers, et cetera. Um, but I think that we don't know how the money will go out from this last $129 billion or whatever it was in the last uh, relief program. Uh, The original discussions, which I'm afraid many school districts will adhere to, was let's use the money to make sure we don't lay off any teachers. And so let's lock in whatever we are doing in the past. Um, This is an interesting time because uh, one of the surprises of the pandemic is that traditional school systems have lost large numbers of kids, particularly mm-hmm. urban school districts, um, you get estimates in the order of 5 to 10% of their kids have disappeared. Now, a number of them have gone off to private or charter schools, but a number of them have just disappeared. Uh, they might be uh, doing homeschooling or they might be completely feral. I, I don't know what um, <laughs> what has happened to them. Um, and so just providing holding harmless on spending to these large districts um, uh, is kind of a funny thing if they don't have the, the students there. What what the districts have to do and what the charter schools have to do, I think, is that when there's a, a influx of federal money, they shouldn't make uh, decisions that have long-run consequences. They shouldn't be hiring new people that will be around after the federal money goes away, which it almost certainly will. Um, They shouldn't be doing things that lock in programs and people um, just because they have this influx of money. Couldn't agree more. Well, that actually validates that I did learn something um, during my doctoral work because Gerard and I um, were talking about that at the outset of the show to invest in, uh, you know, don't don't invest in long term expenses with money that is going to run out. A group of us at the Hoover Institution have developed what we call the Hoover Education Success Initiative uh, or HESI, which is designed to try to take scientific evidence and get it out to the individual states where decisions are being made. 
we will in the next month or so have a combined uh, paper that talks about how our previous work is affected by COVID. So our previous work has dealt with teacher compensation, it's dealt with graduation requirements, it's dealt with testing and accountability and with choice. And so um, look for the HESI uh, anthology that covers how these programs and what we know about uh, is affected by the COVID experience. Well, we'll be looking forward to that, as will our listeners, I'm sure. And perhaps we can have one of you on to tell us more about it um, when you're ready. That sounds fascinating to us. I'm sure you can. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Please take care and um, and enjoy the what I assume is California sunshine um, on our behalf here it's, in it's Massachusetts. It's a sunny day, and, but thank you for having me. <laughs> we appreciate it. Take care. Well, listeners, after that fantastic uh, interview with Dr. Eric Hanushek, I have to say that Gerard has, he has bailed on me. He has left me here alone to do the tweet of the week. It's, uh, you know, I thought he was a great co-host, but here, here I am. But I'm going to tweet about somebody who was definitely a great guest. Well, I'm not going to tweet. I'm going to read his tweet. Who's a great, he's a great tweeter. I know him also as a great uh, moderator, but he's been a great guest here on The Learning Curve, Mike McShane. And he is tweeting about his new book, Hybrid Homeschooling, A Guide to the Future of Education. So um, some of you might have read some of Mike McShane's work that he's put out, um, sort of a precursor to this book on hybrid homeschooling. He was uh, really in the thick of this when hybrid homeschooling became suddenly a thing that more and more people wanted to do. So the guy's got good timing. you got to say that. It's a good one. Check it out. Um, that is Mike McShane. Hybrid Homeschooling, A Guide to the Future of Education. We'll be back next week with Dr. Susanna Heschel. She is the Eli M. Black Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College and the daughter of noted 20th century Jewish theologian and civil rights era leader, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Looking forward to that. We'll find Gerard. He's MIA. We'll, we'll see if he shows up. Otherwise, um, I will be back with you without a doubt next week, same time. Until then, take care. Take care.